You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. In 1503, explorer Amerigo Vespucci wrote a letter explaining that the lands recently discovered by Christopher Columbus were not a part of Asia, as Columbus had claimed. They were instead a new continent, or as Vespucci famously put it, a new world. And the name stuck. Europe became the old world and America the new. And over the following centuries, people left the old world to settle the new, and many goods and eventually people traveled back from the new world to the old. Now, this transit was possible because ultimately the Americas really weren't a new world. They were just a new area discovered by Europeans. In contrast, last week, we looked at the great flood in the book of Genesis, and we really saw the death of an old world and the dawn of a new. And make no mistake, these were, in fact, different worlds. You couldn't travel between them. Once the old world ended, it was gone forever. And only eight people were permitted by God to survive that old world and enter the new. Now today we come to Genesis chapter 8 verse 20 through chapter 9 verse 29. And this section immediately follows the flood and it shows us the start of this new world, the dawn of the recreation. And today we're going to see that this new world is in some ways quite different from the old world. Some things do drastically change after the flood, and yet some things remain the same. And the two main things that don't change despite the flood are the faithfulness of God and the faithlessness of man. And we're going to see that today in four points. First, we'll see the unchanging faithfulness of God towards His people. Second, the unchanging faithfulness of God towards the world. Third, the unchanging faithlessness of man. And fourth, the unchanging faithfulness of God to give sinful people hope. Start with our first point, the unchanging faithfulness of God towards His people. Why did God flood the world? Genesis 6.11 says, The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Sin thoroughly corrupted creation. Every life form, human and animal, descended into moral anarchy. So God said in Genesis 6:17, everything that is on the earth shall die. But God flooded the world not to end the planet, but to start over. And God chose to start over with Noah. Genesis 6:8 says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God gave Noah grace. Not because Noah earned it, because grace is giving someone a gift they have not earned. Noah was a descendant of Adam, a sinner by nature and choice. Noah also deserved to die, but God gave him the gift of salvation, of deliverance from the flood. So God had Noah build an ark, and God used the ark to spare Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives and representatives of every basic form of animal life while all the rest of the world drowned. 
And for 150 days, Noah and those on the ark lived at God's mercy, floating on the waters, sitting in the darkness, wondering what the future held. But Genesis 8.1 says God remembered Noah. And that language of remembering does not suggest that God was prone to forgetfulness. No, it means that God fulfilled His promise to those on the ark. And so God ended the flood and brought the survivors to safety. And after they walked off the ark, we come now to Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. First thing Noah does is he worships God through sacrifice. God had decreed that seven pairs of each type of clean animal should be on the ark, and Noah now offers some of each of these animals to the Lord. Now, this worship testifies that God fulfilled His word to Noah. Noah acknowledges God's faithfulness and honors Him in worship. And we're told that Noah offered these animals as burnt offerings. The Hebrew word is olah. And olah is one of the five types of sacrifice God ordained for the Israelites in Leviticus. It was an animal totally consumed by fire. And why was the olah offered? For atonement. Leviticus 1.4 says the olah shall be accepted to make atonement for him. Leviticus 1.9, the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So the Olah was offered by a sinner to God to appease God's wrath for his sin and to reconcile him to God. Now, on this side of the cross, we understand God does not forgive people on the basis of ritual alone, right? Yeah, Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one has ever been saved by God because of a ritual or a work. God always saves by grace through faith. But what is the faith that saved the Old Testament believer? It was a trust that God meant what He said. That when they brought a sacrifice trusting God, He would apply that sacrifice to them, cover their sin, and show them mercy. And God did that. He applied the sacrifices that were offered in faith. And Leviticus speaks of God smelling the sacrificial offering and being pleased by the aroma. Not because God was hungry and wanted lunch. This is a description of God in human terms so that we can understand Him better. Just like we might smell something appetizing and be happy, God is pleased as He sees His people expressing faith and obedience, and He honors it. Now, this is how our author Moses describes Noah's sacrifice. He uses this language of Olah, of the burnt offering, with which his readers would be familiar. So this tells us we should understand Noah's sacrifice as a sacrifice for atonement. Because he is a sinner, he's offering this, this sacrifice. But more than that, it seems that Noah is also offering this sacrifice as an intercession to God. For his family, because they are sinners. And for humanity, because at this point, they are the entire human race, just his family. And this intercession is necessary because God has been very angry at the human race because of sin. He has nearly destroyed all of it. But as Noah faithfully offers this intercession, we read in verse 21, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, 
This is the technical language of the Old Testament that describes God accepting someone's sacrifice. So Noah's sins are covered. His intercession for humanity is successful. God has peace with creation. His fury is satisfied. The judgment is over. Now what do we see here? God is faithful to His people. He is faithful to deliver us from His wrath. He is faithful to forgive our sin. He is faithful to remember us, to fulfill His promises to us. He is faithful to save. But for God to be at peace with sinful man, it requires death. Because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And the flood proved that was the price of sin, right? God killed the whole world because of sin. Except for the survivors on the ark. Sin produces death. Physical death, the separation of our bodies and souls. Spiritual death, the separation of us from God, the source of all life and goodness. Sin merits eternal death. Ultimate, unending condemnation away from God's presence. But while sin kills, God spared Noah, his family, and the animals. Because James 2.13 says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. But while God is merciful, He still requires death to pay for sin. But graciously, God accepts the death of a substitutionary sacrifice so that His people don't have to pay that penalty themselves. Noah sacrificed animals, just like the first people did in Genesis 4, just like the Israelites did. And God accepted these animal sacrifices to cover sin. But animal sacrifices were limited in their effectiveness. They could not fully cleanse. Hebrews 10.4 says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But today, friends, God has given us a better sacrifice. 1 Peter 1 says, You were ransomed from the futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Jesus is our sacrifice he was offered to make full atonement for us, and His death does not merely cover sin. Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus solves the problem of sin. He is able to fully cleanse us, to fully forgive us, and to make us new. Jesus is the sacrifice who makes full and complete atonement between God and sinful man. And in Jesus, we find God's grace and mercy. In Jesus, we find deliverance from the wrath that is coming on this world. In Jesus, we find forgiveness of sin. In Jesus, God will fulfill His every promise to us. Jesus is our salvation, the ultimate demonstration of God's faithfulness to His people. But we come now to our second point in which we see the unchanging faithfulness of God to the whole world. Look at verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Moses tells us what God is thinking, and we've seen this before. Each time we've been told God's thoughts in this book so far, that happens right before a major event in human history, before the creation of man before the creation of woman, before the expulsion from Eden, before the flood. And now it happens again. And that's because God is about to declare His covenant with all life on earth, 
which will ordain how things are to, to work going forward in this new world. But as God considers his covenant, we see an important truth. Humanity's nature has not changed. The flood has not improved us. We still remain terribly evil. But because of Noah's intercession, God declares the judgment upon the sin of the old world is now over. There will not be any additional curse upon the planet. And God says he will deal with the sin of the new world differently than he dealt with the sin of the old world. The flood will not be repeated. Sin will not be regularly judged through sporadic global floods. No, the flood stands alone. It is a permanent testimony of God's fury against sin. Instead, what is going to characterize the earth is normalcy and regularity and predictability in the passage of time and the way that nature works. Look at verse 23. He says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. There will be no more disruption to the seasons. Instead, there will be predictable cycles that are favorable for life and agriculture and settlement. The abnormality that defined the flooded world is over. And we see that now as God speaks, chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, God speaks to Noah and his sons. And through them he speaks to all life on earth. Look at verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. God says he's going to establish a covenant, a contract, that defines the relationship of two parties. God makes many such covenants throughout the Bible. But this is the first time we're told that God makes one. And this covenant is often called the Noahic covenant, like from the word Noah. But I think that title's misleading, because this covenant isn't only made with Noah, and not only with Noah's sons, but to all offspring, to all people forever, including us. Beyond that, it even extends to the animals. So God here is covenanting with all life that will exist in the new world. And in this covenant, God really asks very little of the animals and the people. Most of this covenant is about God committing himself to do certain things for his creatures. This covenant is a, is a covenant that benefits us. This is a grace to us. Now, what are the terms of this covenant? There are four big ideas. First, God renews the primal command that he gave to life. Some things will be different in the new world, but here's something that doesn't change. In Genesis 1, at the beginning of creation, God told the birds and the fish and the people, be fruitful and multiply. And now at the dawn of the second creation, God repeats this. He repeated it, in fact, first when he told Noah to lead the survivors off the ark. In Genesis 8, 17, he said, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And now twice more, he repeats this command. Chapter 9, verse 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Chapter 9, verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. 
Three times in 13 verses, God repeats this instruction. Clearly, he was trying to tell them something, right? Life was to again spread rapidly through the planet. Because the flood was not the end, it was a new beginning. So the instruction to fill the earth remains in force. That's the first provision. The second provision is that God imposes a new order which requires respect for the value of life. Why did God flood the world? Well, chapter 6 emphasized two sins. Grotesque sexual immorality and shocking violence perpetrated by people and animals alike. God now means to curb this violence with a new order. And that starts with a new relationship between people and animals. Look at chapter 9, verse 2. He says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. In the beginning, God gave humanity dominion over the animals. And remember in the garden how the animals passed before Adam and submitted as Adam gave them new names? The animals understood their place. They were to serve people. And people were forbidden from eating animals. Genesis 1.29 decreed a vegetarian diet for us. But sin shattered this tranquil relationship. Animals became violent towards people, and people became violent towards animals. And while the flood judged sin, it did not change the fallen nature of life on earth. And so the new world begins with this threat that the violence might resume. And God means to restrain that possibility by imposing this new relationship on people and animals. And so God decrees that if an animal spills human blood, that is, if it kills someone, God's judgment is on that animal. The animal must die. Animals must not take human life. But humans are free to take animal life. That's what this phrase, into your hand they are delivered, means. In the Bible, we see when that phrase comes up, it's talking about the power of life and death. And the animals know that God has allowed people to kill them, so now they will live in dread of humanity. Moreover, people are now also empowered to eat animals, but the privilege is restricted. People may eat animal meat, but blood may not be consumed. Why? Well, God doesn't explain this to Noah, but he does explain it in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 17, verse 11. He says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood. Blood is profoundly connected to life. And while an animal could be killed, its blood, the substance of its life, had to be respected. That blood had only one legitimate use, to atone for sin as a sacrifice offered on the altar. Animal blood was holy, consecrated, and dedicated to God's use alone. So people could not consume it. 
That's how people were to show respect for animal life. They could kill them, they could eat them, but they could not consume their blood. Now, what about having a steak rare today? Uh, I don't think this command is in force anymore. Uh, the New Testament suggests the sacrificial and dietary laws have been repealed. But I do think there's a principle here, which is that God requires a mutual respect of life between humans and animals. And we should be mindful of that respect as we deal with animals today. God is kind to animals, and we should be kind to animals as well. But God has more to say here about protecting life. Because now he decrees that people must not kill other people. Look at chapter 9, verse 5. He says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God was always against murder. We saw that when Cain killed Abel. But here God protects human life by decreeing that murder must be avenged. In verse 5, God decrees, He will personally hold murderers to account. He will judge. And in verse 6, God requires people to hold murderers to account by imposing the death penalty. Now, the death penalty is a controversial subject in our culture, right? And there are many legal and social and political arguments about it today. Mainly asking, is the death penalty imposed in an equitable way in our society? Now, many Christians are resistant to listen to those arguments because we know what this verse says. Murder deserves the death penalty. But friends, we should remember that humans are evil and that human society can sometimes use good laws in bad ways and the death penalty can be misused. And if you have questions about that, read 1 Kings 21, where Ahab and Jezebel abuse Israel's death penalty to have Naboth unjustly executed so they can steal his land. Or consider the unjust execution of the Lord Jesus, or the martyrdom of the apostles who were executed for preaching the gospel. The death penalty often has throughout world history been unjustly applied, and friends, God hates that, and he will avenge it. So where there are racial or socioeconomic or other disparities in the application of the death penalty today, Christians, we should oppose that. But that does not mean we should oppose the death penalty. Because God is the one who imposed the death penalty and required its use for murder cases. And friends, it is for society to enforce that. This is not a text that we can appropriate and become vigilantes, okay? But why did God impose the death penalty? Because he's creating a regime that highly values life. God greatly values human life because it's made in his image. And the person who destroys an image bearer of God, who wrongly takes that valuable life, should forfeit his own life. And I don't think it's a surprise that the death penalty has fallen into disfavor throughout the West today, at the same time that the West has abandoned the value of human life, as it has permitted abortion on demand, euthanasia, and so forth. Because the death penalty only makes sense if we see murder as the outrage that it truly is. That the spilling of human blood requires justice in kind, because God values human life. 
And so God requires society to justly avenge the victims of murder. And that is the second provision of this covenant. Third, God decrees that he will never again destroy life on earth through a flood. Look at verse 11. He says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. The flood will remain a unique event in world history. It will not be repeated. Now, if you were with us last week, you might remember the New Testament talks about the return of Christ often by speaking about the flood. Don't those verses mean that there will be global judgment again? Yes, there will, but it will not come by means of water. 2 Peter 3 says, The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. When judgment falls on the earth at the end of history, it won't be a flood of water. It will be a torrent of fire. There will be global judgment again, but not by flood. That's the third provision of this covenant. Finally, God guarantees he will uphold this covenant by creating a sign that symbolizes his promise to be faithful to it. Look at verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. When God makes covenants in the Bible, they are accompanied by a sign, a symbol that speaks of the adherence to the agreement. So God's covenant with Abraham was signified by circumcision, according to Genesis 17. God's covenant with Israel at Sinai was signified by their keeping the Sabbath, according to Exodus 31.17. God's new covenant with believers is signified by communion, according to Luke 22.20. And in the same way, God's covenant with life after the flood is signified by the appearance of the rainbow in the sky. Now, we've just gone through the month of June. And over the last month, we have seen many rainbows, right? On flags and signs and clothing, because the rainbow has been co-opted by the LGBTQ community as its symbol, a symbol of sexual immorality. But friends, that is a subversion of the rainbow, which is a sign from God that he would never again visit sinful people with the judgment of global flood. A flood that, according to chapter 6, was occasioned in large part by sexual immorality. So it is a tragically ironic thing That the LGBTQ movement symbol is something that testifies to the fact that God will judge sexual immorality. Now, these verses in chapter 9 speak of the rainbow as symbolizing God's bow, his weapon, with which he fires his arrows of destructive judgment. We find this 
language in Ezekiel 5. I execute judgments on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes. I am the Lord. I have spoken. When I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I send to destroy you. See, God is a warrior. And God furiously destroys his unrepentant enemies. And God fired his furious arrows in the flood. But now God says he's hanging up his bow. His judgment will not come by way of global flood again. He will give humanity peace from the dread of this particular judgment. Now again, that does not mean that judgment will not come. It does come throughout history. It will come at the end, but not by flood. And God says the rainbow is a sign guaranteeing that. He has made a promise, and he will remember it. That is, he will live up to it. And that is the covenant's fourth provision. Now what should we take from all this? God here shows grace. Not just to his people, not just to Noah, but to humanity throughout every generation. Believing and unbelieving alike. And even to the animals. Now we might be surprised to hear that God shows grace to anyone other than believers. Because we usually talk about grace only in the context of salvation. Right? As sinners, we deserve to die. But those who repentantly entrust themselves to Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection receive God's free gift of salvation in Christ. That's a kindness we don't deserve. That's grace. Salvation is a grace God gives to believers. But God is gracious, and He gives other gracious gifts besides salvation. Think about it like this. Every human is conceived fallen, sinful, and guilty. Each person that's ever lived has deserved nothing but death and hell. But what does God give all of us? Some measure of time, whether long or short. That's a kindness we don't deserve. Sparing us hell for however long we live. And while everyone lives, usually at least, usually all of us at least get to experience a few good things, right? Uh, even the worst sinner winds up with family and friends and a few fun times. That's way beyond whatever he deserves, right? That's grace. This is what theologians call common grace. Grace that God gives to all humanity. The grace of time and of life and the joys of living. Jesus says in Matthew 5.45, God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. It's not like believers get lives of health and wealth and prosperity and unbelievers get lives of misery and suffering. Often the exact opposite is true, right? But God is loving and kind to all of his creatures, even those that rebel against him. God gives us all better than what we deserve. So what common grace do we find here? God gives all people protection for their lives by guaranteeing to avenge murder, by his decree that murderers and violent animals must die. And God promises to withhold the judgment of global flood. And he is faithful to that word. See, God is gracious to everyone, even his enemies. So if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, I want you to know the good things that you enjoy and the time that God has given you and the fact that your sins are not met by immediate destruction does not mean that God is okay with you and that you are safe in your sins. God is being kind to you because 2 Peter 3 says the Lord is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's grace to you shows his goodness. 
And today, by His grace and in His goodness, He calls on you to repent and believe in Jesus. That is an invitation He's given the whole world, according to Acts 17. Turn to Christ and live so that you won't face the judgment that's coming. But believers, Jesus draws a different application from the truth of common grace in Matthew 5.44. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. We have enemies? Do we hate them? Do we want to see them destroyed? If so, we're not acting like our Father. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, it's easy to love people that love you. What distinguishes Christians should be a willingness to serve and pray for and do good to even those who would wrong us and kill us if they had the chance. That's how we should reflect God before our enemies, reflecting the truth of common grace. Are there ways that you can do this today for people that hate you in your life? Because God does that. He is faithful and kind to the whole world. We come now to our third point, and here we see the faithlessness of man. Look at verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah's sons now become central to the story, because from them will come every nation. And particularly one nation is singled out here, Canaan, the historic enemies of Israel. And the father of Canaan was Ham. All right, now what happens with these sons of Noah? Look at verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Noah is the first person to figure out how to make wine. And there's nothing inherently wrong with wine. Psalm 104 praises God because you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate and wine to gladden the heart of man. Wine is a good gift from God if consumed in moderation. But when not consumed in moderation, alcohol leads to drunkenness, which is always condemned as terrible sin in the Bible. Ephesians 5.18 says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now, drunkenness is a sin that Christians today don't seem to think too much about. We often get worked up about lots of things, but not this. But friends, the Bible's warnings about drunkenness are severe. 1 Corinthians 6.9 says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And drunkenness here is equated with a variety of sins that we would probably all say, wow, these are really terrible. And so we need to know that a life abandoned to unrepentant alcohol abuse is a life that evidences a lack of the presence and power of Christ. Paul says unrepentant drunkenness leads to one place, to hell. And if this is something you struggle with, friend, we want to help. Because there is power in Christ to have victory over sin, even addicting sin. And if this is an area of failure for you, repent, confess this sin, do what it takes to fight against it. Talk to someone, get rid of your booze. Friend, kill this sin before it kills you. But Noah got drunk. Now that might surprise us because Genesis 6, 9 said he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. But even righteous Noah sinned, just like you and I, believing friends, we still sin. 
And now we see what happened, verse 21. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Noah got drunk. For some reason, he got naked and he passed out. Verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. We live in a dirty-minded society, don't we? And so chuckling about your father's nakedness might seem like a small deal to us. But ancient people put great uh, emphasis on honor and shame. And him here is perversely gazing on his father's nakedness and then makes him into a joke before his brothers. He is shaming and dishonoring his father, which is terrible because we are to honor our father and mother. In fact, many ancient commentators thought something even more perverse was happening here. Because verse 22's reference to his father's nakedness sounds a lot like what we read in Leviticus 18 that describes the sexual sins of the Canaanites. It's unclear whether we're supposed to make a connection to that passage here or not. But whatever happened in Noah's tent, clearly Ham did something dishonorable and perverse. Now, thankfully, Ham's brothers responded differently. Look at verse 23. Then Sham and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So they take great pains to awkwardly enter the tent, walking backwards, and make sure they cover him without seeing anything. Verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now this becomes one of the most misunderstood and abused verses in the history of American Christianity. Because this verse was the alleged biblical justification for the forcible enslavement of African people in the 18th and 19th centuries. The logic went like this. Chapter 10 says that Ham fathered many nations that settled in Africa. Ham sinned against Noah, and Noah pronounces a curse, sentencing Ham to become a servant of servants, basically the most vile slave, so white people have the right to enslave the descendants of Ham, the Africans. Now, this is a totally false interpretation, because when we read these verses, we discover that Ham was not cursed. Ham and his descendants were not condemned to servitude. So there is no biblical justification for the wickedness of the Atlantic slave trade, which was indefensible evil. Now the curse here falls only upon Canaan, the youngest of Ham's children. Now we might wonder, why is Canaan cursed when Ham is the one who sinned? And that's a great question. And the answer is we don't know for sure. Many people have said, well, maybe Canaan participated in his father's sin. Maybe, but no, Moses doesn't say that. I think the best way to understand this is as follows. Noah cannot curse Ham because in chapter 9, verse 1, God had blessed Ham. And Noah cannot curse someone whom God has blessed. So Noah curses Ham's youngest son. Remember, this is an honor and shame culture. And so this ensures that the shame will last as long as possible beyond Ham's lifespan and the lifespans of his other sons, because Canaan was the youngest. Additionally, Noah may have perceived wickedness in Canaan, the sorts of wickedness that would be practiced by his descendants. 
Because the Canaanites, according to Leviticus 18, practiced all manner of sexual immorality, witchcraft, and even burned their children to demons in sacrifice. And so for these reasons, I think Noah cursed Canaan. All right, now what do we see here? Righteous Noah falls into sin, and we do too. And this is not good. Do not imagine that our sins are insignificant. Oh, it's easy to trivialize and rationalize. Nobody's perfect. It's just a small thing. God won't mind. But friend, remember, sin is high treason in God's universe, and it's terribly destructive. Look what sin produced in this godly family. Godly Noah was disgraced. Broken relationships, terrible, long-lasting shame, and devastating consequences. Sin kills. And as the blood-bought people of God, we must not be walking in sin. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Believers, are we departing from iniquity or walking in it today? Over the last few minutes, we talked about drunkenness. Do you drink? Do you know your limits and stick to them? Or is drunkenness a regular practice? Have people around you told you that you have a problem? Are you willing to listen to them or not? And if not, why? God warns against this severely. So take this seriously, and if you need to repent, do so. Resist drunkenness. We've also talked about racism. Friends, there's only one race, the human race. And we are all descended from Adam and Eve and Noah. We all bear the image of God, and we all bear the image of fallen Adam. And none of us are superior or inferior by virtue of our descent or ethnicity. We'll see in just a minute, God saves people from every tribe, nation, people, and language in Jesus Christ. And we see this in Acts chapters 8 through 10. As we meet a descendant of Ham, the Ethiopian eunuch, a descendant of Japheth, uh, Cornelius, and a descendant of Shem, Paul. And all of them believe and are saved. Even Canaanites believe and get saved in the Bible, like Rahab in Joshua 2. And so, friend, if you are harboring racial prejudice or hatred, repent, because God hates that and He will judge it. And if you try to justify racial hatred by pointing to this passage, repent, because you're twisting God's Word. Or maybe today, there's some other sin that you know you need to deal with before God. Believing, friend, if that's the case, deal with it. Because as God's people, we need to walk differently than the world. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that is not a license for sin. Because just two verses later, John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. We've got to war against our sin. But where we fail, and tragically we will, God's people can take comfort in the promise of 1 John 2.1. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus has made atonement for us, he has satisfied God's wrath, and he has reconciled us to the Father. And he gives us victory from the power of sin so that we are its slave no longer. And this leads us now to our last and briefest point, which is the faithfulness of God to give sinful people hope. Noah has cursed Canaan, but he's not finished speaking. And now he speaks to Shem and Japheth, his two loyal sons. Look at verse 26. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, 
and he died. Noah's last words are a blessing. But while Noah cursed Canaan, note that he does not bless Shem and Japheth. Instead, he blesses God. Because Noah understood an important truth. God is sovereign over everything that happens. But God's sovereignty means that he stands behind good and evil in different ways. When evil happens, God is never responsible. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The responsibility for evil is on evildoers alone. But when good takes place, God is always responsible. Because James 1 tells us every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. God is unchangingly faithful to bring about goodness such that he is the source of every good deed that takes place. And so Noah blesses God because of the good act performed by Shem and Japheth. And Noah prophesies over his sons. First, he speaks of Shem as being uniquely connected to God. Because Shem is the son through whom salvation history will advance. From Shem will come Abraham. From Abraham will come many nations, including Israel, the chosen nation. From Israel will come Jesus. So Shem is the one whom God chooses to head the lineage that will lead to salvation. Second, Noah speaks of Japheth as acquiring significance and power. And that happened. Because from Japheth would come the nations that would inhabit Europe. The Greeks and the Romans who would dominate the ancient world and they were his descendants. Moreover, Noah prophesies that both of these brothers will dominate Canaan and that came true. The Canaanites lost the promised land in the book of Joshua to the Israelites, the descendants of Shem. And the last vestige of Canaanite society, the city of Carthage in North Africa, was ultimately leveled by the Romans in 146 BC. The Canaanites are no more. That curse has no ongoing effect. And historically, Shem and Japheth did dominate Canaan. But it's the last part of this prophecy that's the most interesting. That Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem. Shem is the elect brother. Salvation runs through him. But it is not only for his descendants. Because God would bless Shem's descendant Abraham with these words. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God's purpose is to ultimately bless the whole world. To bless the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth alike. And how does this happen? Through Jesus. Galatians 4, 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus was born. God the Son took on humanity. He was born under the law as an Israelite. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross. He rose victoriously from the dead. And He offered salvation first to those under the law, to the Jews the chosen people of God. But it doesn't stop there. Because as God says, He intends to bless all the families of the earth. Through Jesus, a descendant of Israel, a descendant of Shem, people from every background and nation come together and are saved. As we turn away from our lives of sin and cast ourselves upon Jesus' mercy on the basis of His deity, death, and resurrection, we are added to the one people of God. And that's what verse 27 anticipates. Yes, Shem is the elect son of Noah. The blessing runs through him. But ultimately, the descendants of Noah's other children will come to dwell alongside Shem as equals, as brothers, as the people of God. And that's what we find in Christ. Hope for the nations. 
Revelation 5 praises Jesus because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. The death of Jesus is hope for all of us. No matter what you've done, no matter who your parents are, no matter what your ethnic background is, the blood of Jesus can save you and it brings people from every background together in a third dawn of humanity. It started with Adam. Adam sinned. It restarted with Noah. Noah sinned. It restarts again with Jesus, and he has triumphed over sin, death, and hell, and he gives his people the victory as well. To be, made, uh, to be in Jesus is to be made new. 2 Corinthians 5 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If you're in Christ today, you have a new identity. You're not only made new, you've been adopted into a new family, the family of God. You've been adopted into a new nation, because Philippians 3 says our citizenship is in heaven, and you have a new destiny. Like Noah, you will survive the furious wrath that is coming on the world, and you will enter a new world, a world that will be totally remade, where sin will be utterly banished forever, not just because the unrepentant will be judged, but because sin will be gone from us. And that will be joy, friends, to live with brothers and sisters from all over the world, from all across history, in the new creation, in the presence of God himself forever. So to conclude, if you never come to Christ, repent and believe in him today, because the wrath of God is coming. And if you are not in Christ, you will meet only fire and fury. But if you do know Christ, rejoice, because God is faithful. He's the source of every good thing in your life. He has pardoned you because of the sacrifice of Jesus. He has made you new. He has transformed you and will transform you ultimately to be totally free from sin. He will deliver you from the coming judgment. He will make good on his every word to you, just as he was faithful to Noah. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And what should be our right response to this? That's what we saw from Noah. How did Noah respond to God's faithfulness? Through sacrifice. And what is the sacrifice God wants from us today? It's not a bunch of animals. Romans 12.1 says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Friends, God wants us to live for him, body and mind, to battle to bring every thought in line with his will and word, and to live lives marked by constant obedience to him. Friends, where we find sin in our lives, let us war against it, let us confess it and forsake it. And yes, at times we are faithless, but we will find that God is endlessly faithful to his word, and he gives us the victory by his grace and mercy.